Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house he made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide, for on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house, and they would go up by winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. And he also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, then I will carry out my word which you have I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Okay, now when was this? 480 years after they came out of Egypt. Now that's really helpful. Because uh, this was about 966. We've got pretty good historical connections throughout this period to know pretty close when this would have been. Because this is uh, which year? Fourth year of Solomon's reign. So about 966. So when would that make the Exodus? 1446. <laughs> About 1446. Oh, I was distracting. Oh, me too. <laughs> now, they go backwards. Right. That's, that seems really helpful. Not everybody agrees with that. Let me give you a common, very, very common thought. See what you think about this. It says 480 years. Well, 480 is 12 times 40. You know, 12 is like the number of people of God. And 40 would be like the years that you would consider a lifetime to be. But the truth is a generation is really less than 40 years. So it's probably more like 25. So the time period here is probably more like 300 than 480. Do what? I'm really lost. That is very common. Because the date of the exodus, if we put it at 1446, a lot of people don't think it could have been that early for various reasons. They'd like to put it down the 1200s. So they say, well, it says 480 because that's like 12 uh, generations of 40 years. But really, a generation doesn't last all of 40 years. A generation is more like 25. 
So if you multiply 12 times 25, this is probably just about 300 years after the Exodus, not 480. But it says 480. <laughs> but he's, he's making the other people's argument by saying it's not really 40 years. There are a lot of scholars that would argue exactly that. I think your point is the correct one. Whoever said anything about this being 12 sets of generations, 12 40s? I mean, well, yeah, 480 is 12 times 40. That's actually a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. But when he doesn't make any point about that to say, all right, 480 is 12 times 40, but really probably not so much 40, maybe 25. Wait a minute. You know, I, I just invented all that. So I think this does give us the date of the Exodus as in the ballpark of 1446. And if that... What's wrong with that? Yeah, what do you you know... Do what? Because the people don't like it that early. Yeah. Why not? Well, when Ramses and some of the cities they say didn't exist then and that sort of thing. Yeah, first of all, they don't really want for other reasons to date the Exodus all the way back then. That you know, that seems rather early in the evolution of the Israelite mentality and monotheism and some of the things that the Israelites evolved. So you've got that line of very great skeptics that they, since all of this is a product of natural evolution, that's a little early for them. For more moderates, you've got various things like, you know, they would argue that mm, the cities in Canaan, some of them were continuously occupied down to the 1200s. And so it couldn't be that they went into the land and wiped it out in the 1400s. You know, things like that. Uh, they didn't wipe it out. Go yeah, in, they, wipe they, it out, put your people in, still occupied. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things about this that it's like, wow, you're going to take our very limited grasp of ancient archaeology and overthrow what the Bible says. <laughs> I, I, I think they, I think God knew, knew more about it than what the archaeologist does. And and the arguments aren't as conclusive as what, depending on who you're reading and how one-sided they are, they may make it look like you're just an ignoramus if you believe this was 480 years. That's not the case. <laughs> so I'm just saying that's the kind of thing they'll do. Uh, and that's really common, even among conservative scholars, fairly conservative scholars. Uh, but I think it's 480, you know, that's what it says. So 1446, uh, well, uh, 966, back it up, 480 years, about 1446 for the date of the Exodus. Now, if you know the date of the Exodus, can you back up to the date of when they went into the land of Egypt? 1846. 1876, 430 years. Yeah. There's some that rounded off to 400, but 430 according to Exodus 12. So 1876, and you can eventually go back to the date of Abraham's birth, back in the 2100s somewhere, 2165, something like that. Could you then add up everybody from before him? Maybe. You don't know if they everyone, though. Here are, you know, while we're at it, I mean, trying to go back further than that, can you do that? Now here's, here's the arguments on each side. There are some Bible genealogies that are not complete. I mean, to take a simple one, Jesus is the son of David. That's not exactly complete. You know, well, he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, that's not complete either. And even when you look at Matthew 1, 
which follows the lineage of the kings, there are some two or three, you know, things dropped even between a couple of kings. So genealogies don't have to be complete. However, the other argument is not all genealogies have to be complete, but some of them do. Now, here's the deal. Look at like Genesis 11. These are the records, 1110, these are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad. He had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. Now do you see what we're seeing here? This is not the same as saying so-and-so begat so-and-so, which begat so-and-so, which begat so-and-so. This is saying so-and-so lived so many years and he had this kid. And then this kid lived so many years and he had this kid. And this kid lived so many years. So that's the argument on the other side is to say, okay, not all genealogies are complete, but when you have genealogies that say they lived so many years and they begat the kid and then that kid lived so many years and begat a kid and so forth, that you don't have room for gaps when you do it that way. So that's something to think about. If, if you know, it may be that we can get closer to the date of creation even than what we might have thought. Maybe not the date of creation. Uh, you know, I don't know, well, several things about that, but, but the date of, you know, God making Adam and Eve or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we, might, we might be able to get. Now, you know, uh, Bishop Usher or whatever came up with, you know, 4004 BC, uh, October or something or other, at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, I think, or something like that. <laughs> you know, and someone has said that further than that, as a careful scholar, he would not venture to, I uh, guess. But, uh, yeah. but we might not even do quite that. But, but we may, if, if, if these really are complete, and we can go with this 430, then we can go with the 480 of Exodus 12, and then we can work our way back, maybe we can get pretty close. Uh, there may be some, you know, some you know, weaknesses in that line of reasoning. But that was presented to me a few years ago, and I haven't figured out how to overthrow it. So it may be that, that's a, that we have a more decent idea of when the world was created than, than what maybe we thought. For, anyhow. We can only get to Adam and Eve. Well. Then add six days. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like he yeah. Adds, but how long were they in Eden before? Well, that? I'm saying, yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Before day one. Yeah, exactly. I don't know when he made the heavens and the earth. I don't know how long it was formless and void before he started in the creation oh, days. So, yeah, I mean, but once the days start, I'm fine with the days being 24-hour days. I think that's the most logical explanation of those, since it's evening and morning, and that normally means right. it's well. <laughs> Thoughts and comments? Probably shouldn't have gotten into all of that, but no, I did. Too much math for me. Yeah. Well, but the 480 here is a really that this is an interesting number because that just really wow to tie the Exodus and the building of the temple together gives you a lot more chronological data 
you know, than you might have otherwise. But we already knew the period of the judges, right? From somewhere else? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe. I thought it said somewhere. Well, our spiritual heritage tells us. Yeah, no, you do have a statement in Acts uh, 7, right? In Stephen's speech? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did he say? I don't remember now. He says something like 400 and no. or 350 or something. 375, I think. Let's see here. Oh. Uh, what, where is it? It's not in Stephen's speech right. either, is it? Is it in uh, Paul's speech in Acts 13? Is that where it is? Oh, uh, yeah, that might be. Talks about Samuel. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, you've got Acts 13, 19. When he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. But that was... That's not that including more than yeah okay I don't know it says after these things he gave them judges into Samuel right so I'm not sure about all that you do have a state 400 years that Stephen talks about in verse 6 oh maybe maybe so I may not have been looking at the right uh, part of Stephen Acts 7 uh. 6 no, that's the time they would be in bondage in, in Egypt. Egypt. What time are we looking for? The, the time of the judges. Oh. You have one statement that, that Jephthah <laughs> made somewhere in like Judges 11, uh, 26. That Jephthah indicated it had been at that point about 300 years they had settled in the land. Of course, Jephthah's not the last judge. And we might not be conscience bound to say everything he said was right, but if he's making a reasonable argument to try to convince them, he's probably trying to be reasonably reasonable. And that would kind of fit in with this whole idea. 300 years might be, be good for that. At that point. Yeah. Right. Um, are numbers hard to translate? Yes. They're not hard to translate. Here's what they're hard to do. They're hard to copy. Okay. Because their numbers in Hebrew were just Hebrew letters. And the difference between certain Hebrew letters can be very small, just a little, little extension, next, a, a letter from one to the other. Well, if you're reading in a context, you get it because you know the context. A number doesn't exactly have necessarily a context. So there are more complications with copying numbers. And for that reason, there are some times when we seem to have, in the Old Testament, a copyist error in case of numbers. And that's reasonable? I think it's reasonable. I do. Uh, because it is really hard to copy numbers. And there are several times we have discrepancies in numbers, depending on the right. copy or the translation or whatever. Well, that shows somebody miscopied. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> like some pretty wacky... Yeah, every once in a while, there's a weird, weird thing. I mean, clearly, you, you know, sometimes we have a hard time with the fight. Well, how could God let this be copied and, you know, let them not do this right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, was God saying that he would supernaturally make every copy right? There are some miscopy, there's some mistypesetting in at least the old New American Standard. I'm not sure I found any in this one. There's a few. Like typos? Yeah, yeah, there are. 
And uh, well, there's been some really, uh, there's some really notorious typos yeah, over the years. The Ten Commandments: Thou shalt not commit adultery. They left out the not. <laughs> <laughs> there was the breeches Bible, but I forget what that was. But I think there were breeches or something. But there was some deal with the copying of that. So I mean, you know, you're not forced to print it correctly. So, but you know, here's the thing that's so faith strengthening. Uh, just thinking about the Old Testament, which is the question of the copying of the numbers. Numbers aren't such a problem in the New Testament. But, but you know, the earliest copies we had had were from about 900 A.D. Mm-hmm. Because the Jews had the habit of destroying the Old Text when they copied the New one. It was kind of a security measure for them. So, so you didn't have old copies. The Masoretic text, the Jewish text we had, was from about 900 A.D., before the Bedouin boy found the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls in about 1947. The Dead Sea Scrolls are about a thousand years earlier, about 100 BC. And they have most of the Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls and a lot of that's been cataloged and tabulated and all that. How many times in your Old Testament does the margin say DSS such and such? The Dead Sea Scrolls reading is different. Not very many. <laughs> you know, when they went back and compared it with the Dead Sea Scrolls, wow, the copying had been incredible. Yeah. For a thousand years to have very few readings altered, very few, is really faith strengthening. And when we can go back to a hundred years before Christ, then, wow, we're getting a lot closer to the time it was written. New Testament's not such a problem because yeah. we got New Testament manuscripts. We got snatches from like 40 years after it was written in the case of John. Mm-hmm. And, you know, complete manuscripts within 250, 300 years after it was written. And that That's cool. like, quotes a lot of Old Testament stuff, too. Well, so it does quote a lot of Old Testament stuff. And we got so many manuscripts and we've got translations and we've got quotations and we got just all kinds of textual evidence for the New Testament. The Old Testament was the harder part, mm-hmm. but the Dead Sea Scrolls really have helped that. All that in First Kings six. <laughs> the building of the temple. The building of the temple. Well, that's what I knew about. Now I don't know a whole lot about this building of the temple. Uh, you know, he gives the the dimensions. You've got the porch. You've got you know all sorts of things connected with the building of the temple here. Uh, you've got the various uh, artistry uh, and so forth. Uh, everything has to be exact. Notice verse seven. You pre-cut, you know, nothing sloppy is tolerated. You know, they don't hammer it in. They don't saw it off. Everything's prefab, preformed, and then just, you know, slipped into place. Um, and notice verse 12. You know, what God is saying to Solomon is, you doing my will is even more important than the details of the temple. You know, I will dwell in you not because I really like the looks of the building. I will dwell in you and will not forsake my people because you're doing my will. They miss it if they think the key to getting God dwelling to God dwelling among them is to get the temple all fancy. So he really likes his house. He's going to want to dwell with them when they're obedient and faithful to him. And that's a great lesson for us as well. the reason why you couldn't have a hammer or axe or any iron tool for it? Well, I think it's just the precision of the temple. They, he doesn't allow them. 
to beat it in or to cut it off or anything. It's got to be preformed. Everything's pre-made, and they just put it into place. So it's not. Is there a law prohibiting that? Solomon is saying we're not doing it this okay, way. But that doesn't go back to Deuteronomy. No. It doesn't mean you doesn't necessarily mean silence is no, I, I think it's just that, you know, they're not they're not using any tools on it on site. Like some people take that to be like, oh, we should be silent before you God. have to whisper it's while like, you're building the temple. <laughs> I've heard somebody use that as reference. I have never heard that before. I have heard people say you had to be silent, but I've never heard this passage. Yeah, it was this. Mm-hmm. Whoa. <laughs> they said they wouldn't even you know, lift a hammer. They were so reverent to God, you know, in assembling his house. Kind of like that. <laughs> well, you understand the problem with that. What is the Lord's house? Us. Yeah. So do we have to whisper yeah. everywhere? Yeah, but never <laughs> take a hammer to me. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a fairly good rule not to hit yourself with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. No squealing in life. Yeah, I mean that's just like mm-hmm. we if, if we try to think of a church building a meeting place and equate that with the temple, we have really missed it. Should we be reverent to God? Absolutely. Should we be respectful as we worship God together? Yes. But not because of some rule about not using a hammer or when they built the temple. Maybe a halfway decent concept, but way wrong passage to prove it. <laughs> Other thoughts? This was a, just thinking about this, um, the not using the tools because everything was cut off-site to the right dimensions and, and all of that. Just thinking of the, the logistics of sequencing everything that's coming in and, and how it has to be. I mean, that's that certainly requires a wee bit of, of wisdom. I mean, if, yes. if, if you're like me and on Saturday morning you watch the home improvement shows where they build things like immediately and you, you can see these, these houses being built and they bring all the braces in and, and everything's numbered and mm-hmm. they've now recreated this building that they moved across the country and it's exactly the way it was. and. And it's not, it's not easy to do that. Right, exactly. This is well-designed, well-planned, well-carried out. Otherwise, you couldn't do that. This is not something where you're just kind of trying to, you know, beat it into place and, you know, well, I'll just cut it off a little more, you know, see if it'll go then, you know. <laughs> the, I mean, this certainly shows the precision and exactness and the carefulness in making Well, I mean, it's essentially based upon the tabernacle only twice as big. Because God gave the plans for the tabernacle, but I was trying to think, did God give the plans for the temple? I don't know. I don't think Chronicles really details the plans for the construction of the temple, does it? There's all kinds of plans for the worship in the temple that David was in charge of. So... All right, other comments or questions? What did they do with the extra stairs? With the extra what? Yeah.
Like he was ta- wasn't talking about being like three stories high. Yeah. But the tabernacle only had one. So what did they put in the other two? Yeah, floors? what was the, what were the other two for? I guess I'm not assuming that there were actually floors in the tabernacle. Oh. But, there was just but they were winding the stairs. Attached to the outside, so is what it appears. That's what I assume. Yeah. So the tabernacle was. 20 by 60 by 30, and then there were stories on the outside walls connected to it. And they got wider. Yeah, do you it's get like the rooms getting well, bigger? Well, but I think there were like up? pillars outside of the first one, and it sat on top of those. Then there was another row of pillars, and it went out on those. That's but how I imagine that it. still looks silly. Is it the outside, though, or the inside? I mean, is it, if I'm if I'm standing at the, the gate, the entrance to the temple, looking towards the altar, is it like, the third floor is there, and then the second floor there, and then we've got the first floor. No, like it's, or, no, it's the other so way. Or is it this way going yes. this way? Yeah. So that the, it's sticking out. Yes. So but I think with the pillars and everything, it looks like. I don't think that would look funny. But I thought you just said that there were floors. There are on the outside rooms. So there are, there are outside rooms. Like oh. Yeah, I'm just terrible with So it's like a vaulted stuff, ceiling so. of oh. rooms on you the side. You don't have a color? No, I don't. <laughs> like, I have been picturing what Ariel's picturing, but I think it looks silly, it's so I don't understand. Mm-hmm. With the rooms being outside of the I'll t- draw it sometime. <laughs> Very Next time, stuff, that'll though. be yeah. <laughs> you should tell. That's your, your, your yeah. do a little CAD there. Yeah. <laughs> I bored him. No, I just yeah. always have something in my head. Well, I have nothing to say about all that. Well, but that looks like. yeah. Why don't we do a little another section, fourteen to twenty-two, or fifteen to twenty-two? Then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, and he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for it on the inside as an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house, that is, uh, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. There was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds with open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and drew the chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary and he overlaid it with gold. <coughs> he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Okay, so you got cedar, you've got everything overlaid with gold. You've got the front room 40 cubits long, 20 cubits wide. You've got the inner sanctuary 20 by 20 by 20, and I believe it was uh, 10 by 10 by 10 in the tabernacle. So it's a perfect cube, um, and everything overlaid by gold in the inner sanctuary. Uh, you've got the altar overlaid with gold. 
Notice in 22, the altar was by the inner sanctuary. It was actually outside of the inner sanctuary, because what did you do on that altar? Burn incense. Burn incense, so it had to be outside the uh, inner sanctuary so the priest could get to it, but it actually was a part of the Holy of Holies because the incense would penetrate through the veil and God would smell it, so to speak. So uh, it, it was a part of the Holy of Holies, even though it had to be in the outer room just in front of the veil. Comments and observations. So the altar that they're talking about is the altar of incense. Incense, the gold altar. Not the, the bronze altar outside, outside where they outside actually the courtyard burned the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Okay. You got the two altars, the golden and the bronze incense and burnt offering. One of them right there in front of the veil, the other one out in the courtyard. A lot of gold. Yes. Gold closest to God. Bronze out in the courtyard. Other comments or questions? interesting how the value of the metals increases as you get closer to the where it's going to be the most holy place. Yes. You got bronze and then... Yeah, I think that's very purposeful. It shows you just the sacredness of God's presence. Gold's the most valuable metal perhaps in the Bible the way it looks at. I guess it is for us today too. Why like, is gold expensive? <laughs> do what? Why is gold expensive? Because it's gold. Because we really value it. It's rare. It's always been. It seems to have always been. Why people value it, I don't know. It doesn't rust. That's true. It's non-reactive. It's soft enough to mold. All right, well, we'll stop here for tonight. Uh, I think I figured out that I can be here next week, then not the next